If I've not had the chance to meet you, my name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here at Soma Midtown, and uh, it's a real gift to be with you. Um, we are going to continue. At this, at this time, we uh, take some time each week to teach uh, from Scripture, apply it to our lives, and put ourselves under God's truth as the thing that sets us free. And, um, and so we have been in a series for the last several weeks during the Lenten season on sin and redemption. And last week, Steve did a wonderful job, thank you, Steve, uh, of describing, we've been talking about kind of sin and what it is and the dynamics of sin and the sources of sin. And we talked the last several weeks about the flesh and the powers. And then Steve left us last week in the world and kind of how sin gets normalized and institutionalized in the world. And so what I want to do, what we want to do for the next several weeks is move uh, kind of from like a high level view to really zooming in and looking at the impact specifically on our lives of sin and how it's repaired. How do we actually go about repairing these fractures that we live in and what's become normal? How do we, how do we kind of uh, live into a different story? And so this week, we're going to be talking about trauma. Next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And then we're going to talk about justice. And I think these are some of the, the bigger uh, issues that come out and flow out of our understanding of sin and redemption and and I think in many ways are at the tip of the spear for the credibility of the good news of Jesus in our time. And so let's just take a moment as we do every week. I want to read this passage of scripture. It's one verse today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John 16. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a red one around you. Um, looks like this. You can use this or you can even take this home. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have like a physical copy of scripture so you can get into it for yourself. John 16. And... Uh, well, let me just read this, and then I want to say some things to set up our time. Jesus said this to his disciples. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous or take heart. I've conquered the world. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to invite you just to put your stuff down for a moment. And we are going to talk about trauma. And I realize as I say that word uh, in the church, for many of us, maybe our pulse starts to quicken. We start to sweat a little bit. Uh, maybe we get anxious. And maybe even some memories may begin to rise within us as we think about such a deep and weighty topic and a heavy topic as trauma. And I want to just say a few things um, as, we, as we enter into this. Um, this is not a trauma workshop. I am not a trauma specialist. Um, I, I'm a pastor, and I think you guys know that, but I, I'm a pastor. I did a lot of research. I've spent a lot of hours uh, thinking and praying and, and working on this. But what I want to do today is just acknowledge kind of a, my limitations. And I want to give us sort of a biblical and pastoral framework that I hope will lay a foundation. This is not the only conversation that needs to be had. There's so much more that I am editing out of our time together. Um, but I want to give us a foundation as we begin to or maybe continue to reconstruct the damage done by traumatic experiences in our lives. I want to speak to the complexity, but I also want to just provide a pastoral framework and a space for us to process together what it might look like to name those realities and to bring them into the presence of Jesus to find healing. That's, that's what I want to talk about today. And as we're doing that, I want to recommend some resources because I'm living in that limited space. Just a couple of resources that I found to be really helpful uh, there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score, which I think is the best book on trauma out there. If you've not read it, it's, it's written by uh, a doctor and gives so much more nuance to, the under, to an understanding, a holistic understanding of how trauma impacts us and how we find healing kind of from sort of like a, 
psychological uh, and brain-based, body-based approach. Very, very helpful if you want to do some more reading or you're interested in this topic. Um, another book that I found extremely helpful, uh, especially for leaders um, and those in ministry, is The Wounded Healer by Henry Nouwen. Uh, I'll be quoting that some uh, throughout our time together. And then <clears throat> I think this topic has uh, really huge ramifications for, uh, particularly for parents. And I know we have so many parents or grandparents in our church. And I want to recommend this book called Parenting from the Inside Out, because as we uh, will talk about in a minute, if we don't transform our pain, we transmit it to other people. And oftentimes we are reliving our trauma in the presence of our children in ways that are traumatizing them. And so, man, the freedom to be able to go into our own story, honestly name our stories, and then find healing in our stories, I think has a sort of multi-generational implication for us. And I, I just want to recommend this as a resource, as well as we have a number of like clinical psychologists and therapists and people in our church and outside of our church. And so for some of you, this is not going to be enough. And there, there's a lot more that you're going to need. And so I want to commend to you trauma-informed therapy, um, EMDR, the healing of memories. Some of you are going to need medication. Some of you uh, need to enter into neurofeedback and some of the beautiful discoveries that we're making about our body that are providing great freedom for people. Um, we don't do that here at the church, but we have a number of those resources in our church. And so if you are interested in those, please email us. Uh, we'd love to, to point you in that direction. Um, and also, just at the end of the service, I just want to say we'd, we'd love to pray with you. Um, we'd love to just offer prayer. And again, that may not, it doesn't change your past, but it can begin to change your interpretation of your past and what's happened to you and what that means, which is actually the most important part of the work of trauma. So with that being said, let's just take a deep breath. And I want to invite you to be reminded in your bodies here that God is with us. That's what Jesus tells us in this passage. God is with us. He holds our stories within his story. That's the source of healing for us is that God is holding us in our pain, in our suffering, in our trauma, and it matters to him. And so just bring yourself fully before God, whatever you might be feeling right now, whatever anxiety you might be carrying in your body, whatever you might be thinking about or whatever distractions are here, let's just hold that before God. And if you need to step out, if you get, you know, triggered or you start to feel uncomfortable, feel free to step out during this sermon today. I don't want you to feel compelled to be here, but if you're going to stay here, I just want to invite you just to take a moment. Let's, let's take a moment of silence, hold our stories before God, and then I'll pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you into our, our bodies, our minds, our hearts and souls, our stories, as you have welcomed us into your life in Christ by the power of the Spirit. We want to fix our gaze on you and just return your loving gaze towards us. I pray that that might create for us a sort of safety this morning enter into very deep waters, very troubled waters, very difficult places, very dark places. 
and be reminded that you go down with us to the bottom of those dark places and you died for that darkness and you rose to bring light into that darkness and you hold our stories. You know all the things that we cannot know, don't want to know. So God, would you just invite us into a space this morning of opening ourselves, of listening, of paying attention to what you might be doing, what you might be stirring in us and around us. And God, I pray that we could find some healing and some liberation and some freedom in the good news of Jesus together. We pray this in his name. Amen. One of my favorite shows as a kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And some of, you, some of you laugh, you're like too young to have actually watched it when it was actually on TV. You've seen it on YouTube or whatever, but it was a pretty amazing show. And so I was excited a couple years ago when uh, Will Smith, um, which is complicated to bring up Will now, um, it's been a year, but uh, in my mind, he was, he was like a, a hero uh, growing up. And when, when he announced that he was coming out the memoir called Will, I was excited to read it. So I read his memoir and I was surprised, right? If you've read the memoir, the very first chapter is called Fear. And here's how he opens with these haunting words about his own story. He said, I've always thought of myself as a coward. Most of my memories of my childhood involved me being afraid in some way, afraid of other kids, afraid of being hurt or embarrassed, afraid of being seen as weak. But mostly I was afraid of my father. When I was nine years old, I watched my father punch my mother in the side of her head so hard that she collapsed, and I saw her spit blood. That moment in that bedroom, probably more than any other moment in my life, has defined who I am today. Within everything that I've done since then, the awards and accolades, the spotlights and the attention, the character and the laughs, there has been a subtle string of apologies to my mother for my inaction that day, for failing her in that moment, for failing to stand up to my father. What you have come to understand is Will Smith, the alien annihilating MC, the bigger-than-life movie star, is largely a construction, a carefully crafted and honed character designed to protect myself, to hide myself from the world, to hide the coward. I did not know that story. I was drawn to Will's charisma, but man, how many of us live with a sort of projected self that hides the pain and the trauma underneath. I mean, this is the essence of a trauma story. Here you have a person who experienced something at nine years old that he could not do, that was not his fault, that he could not have protected himself against if he had wanted to, that led him to this place of shame and powerlessness and loneliness that then sort of created for him a persona that he spent the rest of his life. The key in understanding this is when he says, this has defined who I am today. Trauma is a story that defines our lives, that we begin to live out of, even unconsciously, right? Like, he's done a lot of therapy. I can hear it in the book as he's looking back and interpreting his life. He understands this was a sort of narrative script that I lived out of. And so, it's important for us as a church, if we're talking about sin, to be able to talk about trauma, because it is our experience. And Jesus, in probably one of his most unfamiliar and disliked promises, says in this passage to us, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Oh, that's what I want, Jesus. I want peace. I want security. And he says, here's how you're going to find peace. You will suffer in this world. There's this paradox. Jesus always does this. He brings us into attention. It's not what we think it is. But be courageous. I have conquered the world. Jesus here in John 14 to 16 
is in what we call the upper room discourse. It's his last meal. He's gathered around the table with his disciples, imparting essentially his last teachings, his last words. He's not giving it in a sermon. Uh, he is sitting around a table with those whom he loves, preparing them for a time when he is going away. It's an intimate space. It's a holy, sacred space. And Jesus promises them. He says, I want you to know, so you're in another place. He says, so you're not surprised about what's going to happen. You will have trouble. You will have, the Greek word here is thlipsis. Thlipsis is a word that can be translated suffering or hardship or trouble. It's referenced 45 times in the New Testament. Almost every book talks about thlipsis. And thlipsis can range from severe persecution and death to natural disasters like plagues and pestilence to just the more everyday, ordinary troubles that we experience. And in his context, would be experienced by his disciples after he physically leaves and he sends his spirit, things like harassment and slander and exclusion and alienation and marginalization from their family members, from neighbors, from their business community, and from even their dominant religious community. This is Thlipsis. And Jesus says, I want you to know this is the world in which you live. You live in a traumatized world. Now, I want to define what I mean by trauma because I know different people use it differently. I want to make sure that we all understand when we use a, a heavy word like trauma, what I mean and what I don't mean. So in the, in the Bible, there are four interrelated categories for life in a broken world. And we need to have a vocabulary. We need to have a grammar for all of these because if we improperly diagnose what's happening to us or incompletely diagnose, we will provide the wrong prescription, the wrong treatment. And so in the Bible, there's four basic categories. There's sin, which we've talked a lot about in this series, a failure to love and to trust God. It's something that's done by all of us. All have sinned, Paul says, and fallen short of the glory of God. The second category is damage. These are psychological structures or physiological structures in our brains, in our bodies, in our minds, in our genetics that are non-existent or underdeveloped or distorted so that changing them or adjusting or compensating for them is, is really limited or sometimes impossible. Think about a physical disability. Think about a neurodivergent brain. Think about a personality disorder, right? These things are hard. They're damaged, caused by living in a broken world. It's not anybody's fault necessarily, but it is a reality we have to acknowledge. Third category is weakness, right? Like kind of these vulnerabilities. Paul talks about bearing one another's faults, right? This sort of weaknesses or vulnerabilities related to our personality, our story, our level of emotional resilience. A number of things can be weakness. And then finally, the fourth category, which is what we want to talk about today, are wounds. Wounds are hurt and harm caused by the sin of other people. It's the sin done to us and the sin normalized around us, whether intentional or unintentional, whether micro and small or macro and life-altering. We, the Bible says, are people characterized by wounds. Wounds are anything that ruptures intimacy. Wounds are all about, they're relational, right? They're all about intimacy. If you read the Bible story, it's a, it's a story of trauma, and it's about the disruption of an intimate relationship between God uh, and people and people and one another and even people and the world. And when these wounds become overwhelming, now we're in the waters of trauma. Trauma comes from a late 17th century word with Greek origins that literally means wound. Webster's Dictionary defines trauma as a disordered psychic or behavioral state resulting from severe mental or emotional stress or physical injury. Author and therapist Resma 
Menachem describes trauma as a wordless story our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. See, trauma is not just an event that happens to us and then it's over, right? You think about uh, just normal, like physical wounds. I, I am currently in physical therapy for the first time at 42 and I assume this is gonna be the rest of my life. Um, and I had some stiffness in my back and all of a sudden I can't lay on my side and it's painful to sit and so I'm compensating. I'm like walking around, you know, like this and I'm stretching and I'm just doing all this stuff and having to compensate with my chair and pillows and it's just not fun um, being 42. Um, and now those who are older than 42 are laughing at me, but this is the beginning. And uh, I found out that I have uh, my SI joints, if you're in physical therapy in the back, essentially the curvature of my spine is sitting on these joints and they're just rigid, and, and the word is locked up, which doesn't sound great, okay? So I'm doing six weeks of physical therapy uh, while I'm adapting and compensating for that. And the goal is to, I guess, open up my joints. That sounds really bad. Open up my joints and develop a new core strength that can allow that to uh, go differently in the future. And so the, the point is, there's physical problem. Hopefully there's healing, and then we move on, and I'm able to walk normally and not experience pain. But what happens when pain becomes chronic. And what happens in that pain is not just physical, but it could be emotional or, or mental. When pain becomes chronic, when wounds become chronic and internalize, like emotional scripts, somebody says something to you, they speak words over you that get internalized into a sort of way of thinking about yourself, thinking about relationships, thinking about your body, thinking about God, thinking about the world. And man, some of this stuff happens to us so young, we don't remember it. We don't even realize, like Will, that we're living out of this script, and yet it impacts every conversation. It impacts our ability to show up in a consistently healthy and trusting and receptive way. We find ourselves vigilant, is the word, vigilant in our relationships, always having to kind of protect ourselves, always having to manage, always having to manipulate, always having to guard a fragile sense of self. This is the essence of trauma. The Bible speaks of trauma as a sort of failure of heart. Jesus says, be courageous. Another translation is, take heart. So the opposite of that is a failure of heart. If you read the Psalms, the language around our wounds is always tied to a broken heart and a crushed spirit. You'll see that show up over and over and over again. So this becomes the story that we connect to, the story that defines us and that we live out of. Our story becomes not one of creation and beauty and shalom and peace, as Jesus talks about, and joy and connection, but rather a story of shame, a story of disconnection, a story of rupture, and a story of pain that won't go away, that keeps us not only locked into the past, but actually unable, and this is the more important thing, unable to live fully and freely right now in the present with the people that God has put me around. That's the heart of trauma. Christian psychologist Kurt Thompson defines it this way. Trauma results from an event or a series of events or a set of circumstances perceived by an individual as physically or emotionally overwhelming, which has lasting adverse effects on functioning, mental, physical, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Affects one also perceives himself or herself to be powerless to change. So the key to understanding trauma is understanding it is the perception that I am powerless. Like I can't do anything about this. I can't change it. And therefore I feel 
lonely. I've been robbed of my sense of agency, and, and I can't get unstuck. He identifies three types of trauma. What he calls trauma A, which we might call wounds of neglect, a distant emotional environment where you didn't receive what you needed, parents who left or a parent who left when you were young, bouncing around in a foster care system, a lack of nutrition or sleep, needs being ignored, people withdrawing from touching you, offering you joy and delight or connection. These are all ways that we were designed to flourish as human beings. Maybe you had a physical or mental disability that caused people to withhold affection out of embarrassment because they didn't know how to interact with you. Maybe your parents were climbing the wealth ladder and they worked a lot and they were emotionally unavailable to you. Maybe you were an artistic kid raised in a family of hyper-competitive athletes and you always just felt a little bit out of place and a little bit shame because you weren't quite as athletic or vice versa. It leads to a sort of environment where apathy and contempt and coldness and detachment are kind of the emotional atmosphere of a home. Now, I hear this story all the time. I hear abuse stories as a pastor, but the one that I hear the most that I feel like people don't really understand as trauma is the wounds of neglect. I hear the story where people will come in and they'll say something along the lines of, I want to tell you my story, and it starts with, I grew up in a family, and they were good, like they didn't beat me or anything, as if that's like the standard for a great family. They didn't abuse me, but, and then they begin to tell me all of the sadness all of the emotional voids. They talk about feeling alone, feeling unseen, feeling like nobody really received them in the way that they needed to be received. And then here they find themselves with a complete inability to regulate their emotions, to show up well in relationships, to form emotional connections with their spouse or their children. That's trauma A. Trauma B, it can be broken out into two types. Type one refers to singular trauma, like a single one-off event or a circumstance, something that happened to us that should not have happened to us, um, that then kind of has lingering effects. When I was in middle school, I was uh, asked with a group of eighth grade boys, about five of us, to move a large metal cabinet that weighed about 300 pounds, which just if you're a teacher, please don't ask eighth graders to do this. Uh, But we picked this up and we moved it. And before I could set it down, the other guys dropped it. I couldn't get my hand out and my finger got caught in uh, underneath this cabinet. And I screamed, right? Because I had this sense of, I can't get my hand out. Please lift this up. And for a moment, my body freaked out like all of the stress hormones released, my brain going into hyper-vigilant mode, trying to protect itself. And they lifted it up. And of course, my finger's like hanging off at the end and I'm bleeding all the way through the hallway. And I go to the hospital and I get 40 stitches, 20 on the inside, 20 on the outside. But that wasn't the worst part. It was the nightmares and the flashbacks. And when I came back to school, I was the kid whose arm got chopped off by this cabinet, even though it was just my finger and it didn't even get chopped off. And there was a sort of like ongoing trauma of like people retelling that story and me not being, it took me forever to like not have the nightmares. And that's just a small example. But we could all talk about car accidents that changed our lives. We could talk about being robbed. We could talk about hospitalizations. We could talk about the death of a loved one. We could talk about that frat party in college where you were manipulated and you left feeling ashamed that you still live with to this day. We could talk about all of these sort of singular traumas that blindside us. I mean, one in five Americans are sexually molested as children. One in four children are beaten by a parent. One in three couples engage in physical violence. One in four kids grow up with alcoholic parents. One in eight have witnessed their mother being hit by a male figure in their home. Singular trauma, 
complex trauma, right? Sometimes that gets repeated over time and it becomes complex. It becomes diffused. It's, it's usually happening at the hands of those who are supposed to be caring for us, who are relationally close to us. This is where we put the category of things like ongoing physical and sexual and emotional abuse. This is where like deception and gaslighting would go, right? Where we bend reality and we tell stories that are not true about our spouse, about our home. And then people have to live in that where a world feels upside down over decades. Words that are repeatedly spoken over us from the time that we were little. You're fat, you're skinny, you're too tall, you're too short, you're not enough, whatever. Favoritism. I see this all the, all the time where one child is treated a certain way and another child is treated another way and there's a sort of narrative that develops about myself if I'm the child that's not treated well. Medical diagnosis. These things are so traumatizing that often we split off. Psychologists call this disassociation. We split off that part of ourselves and we live with this dual existence and we forget, we compartmentalize because our bodies can't handle it and yet, as Vanderkoek says, our bodies keep the score. And then it, we, we become adults decades later, right? Vanderkoek says this stuff stays in our bodies for decades, trauma does. And then an image, a smell, a particular person or a situation activates our central nervous system. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in flight, fight, freeze, or collapse because our body is remembering the trauma that it once lived. Because trauma affects our whole person. Talk about in trauma training, uh, the five Bs of trauma, right? It's, it's an embodied pain that impacts our whole person. It impacts our brains. It impacts our biology. Trauma can get into your genetics. If you're familiar with epigenetics, the field of epigenetics, scientific research is showing us that painful events get encoded into our DNA and passed down to the third and fourth generations. Isn't it interesting that, G, that, that the Bible talks about sin being passed down generationally from the third and fourth generation? If you read the book of Genesis, it's a study in epigenetics <laughs> and how deception gets passed down and eventually ends up with a guy in a pit, a teenager in a pit, being abandoned and abused by his family. It affects our bodies. It affects our behavior. It affects, most importantly, our beliefs. Vanderkolk says this, trauma produces actual physiological changes, including a recalibration of the brain's alarm system, an increase in stress hormone activity, alterations in the system that filters relevant information from irrelevant. Trauma compromises the brain area that communicates the physical embodied feeling of being alive. These changes explain why traumatized individuals become hypervigilant at the expense of spontaneously engaging in their day-to-day -day lives. And that's why in a recent Harvard Public Health article called The Age of Trauma, they said we live in a, in a world characterized by multiple overlapping, almost relentless traumas. I mean, COVID-19 wasn't the only pandemic. There's a pandemic of all kinds of things that are happening. They call this syndemic, when you have multiple overlapping traumas happening simultaneously and you feel powerless, right? You feel exhausted. That's why it's exhausted just waking up and going to work because we live in a traumatized age where anxiety is spiking through the roof, depression spiking through the roof. And I want to just especially just pause for a moment. And I don't mean to exclude uh, women, but I just want to speak to men because I feel like so many times this conversation is really hard for men. I have so many men in my office that will tell me stories of their woundedness. But it's amazing to me how men are flocking to guys like Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan and other kind of uh, guys speaking to the masculine wound. And guys will tell me, I go to these people because I feel like the church has nothing to say to me in my woundedness. 
and I don't know what to do with my wounds. John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, said, the progress in our world today has come with unintended consequences. Kingdoms, right? Empire building, which is what we are doing here, right? We're, we're doing this. We are inheritors of, of an empire, right? And we have, in many ways, modeled our society on empire thinking, right? Bigger, better, faster, stronger. I'm not saying all that's bad, but we have to see there's a shadow to that. Kingdoms are built with blood. Ambition to build empires comes at a cost. Pastors use volunteers to build churches. Influencers use followers to build platforms. Brands use customers to build fortunes. So many of the calls for justice today are simply calls to acknowledge and repair the damage done by aggressive men who built their legacy without thought of the human cost. So many men have been wounded by the wars of the modern world, political wars, relational wars, vocational wars, family wars. Men walk around with gaping wounds in their hearts, father wounds, wounds of rejection, wounds of shame, wounds of failure. They seem stuck between ambition and ambivalence, looking for a way of impact without injury, destiny without damage. And just because I went and saw Les Mis this week over at Butler, these are just like, these are wounds that cannot be spoken. And they're often not spoken. But here's the reality for us men. Pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. It will impact our wives, our children. If we don't deal with our pain, other people have to deal with our pain. And if we are going to assume sort of leadership for all the talk about men being leaders, right? If you are a person who thinks that, you know, you've, you've been given a leadership responsibility, I'll just quote Spider-Man, right? With great leadership and, you know, comes great responsibility, right? Great opportunity, great responsibility. Like, we have to take responsibility for our wounds, the question is, what are we going to do with our wounds? Will we get healed or will we perpetuate more woundedness? Thankfully, we aren't left alone to name the reality of trauma. The Bible is a book about trauma viewed through a certain lens. It's a book about wounds. Wounded people wounding other people. Traumatized worlds seeking healing from deep and complex and overwhelming woundedness. And so I just want to stop for a second and just to ask you, what trauma have you lived? Just take a moment and take a deep breath. I mean, this is heavy, right? I'm only even talking here about individuals. We're not even talking about how trauma can get into families and communities and social systems and cultures and nations and institutions. We're not even talking about systematic trauma. We're just talking about what we've lived, but it's heavy. And I just want to invite you to pause to just name what you've lived. Even if you don't feel like it's that big of a deal, it doesn't matter. You've still been traumatized. And your inability to own that will eventually own you and me. Trauma is part of our reality for life east of Eden. But the good news, Jesus says, is I've come to bring healing. And that's where I want to focus just the rest of our time here together. What does it look like to experience healing? Because Jesus tells us these things, not just so we can name how broken the world is, he tells us so that we can experience peace. There is an offer in Jesus of living a good life within a traumatized life. There is an offer in the good news of Jesus to live a different story. And that's what Jesus says. And as I was researching and thinking about how to present this, such a complicated topic, um, all the research, it was actually encouraging to me, all of the research all the training that I've done in, in adoption uh, work and different things, all of the, like, the, the research points to, as I'm reading, I'm just like, this is exactly what God is offering for us 
in Christ and in, in the body of Christ. Right? The, the, the answer is in attending to our bodies, right? Our name as a church means soma, which is the word for body. We've always said the greatest gift we give the city of Indianapolis is not another religious service. It is the body of Christ used as a sort of double entendre, looking to Jesus and his body and what happened to him as a source of healing and to becoming a body, a safe place where we can experience healing together and then offer that healing to the world, what Henry Nowen calls becoming wounded healers. So there, I, I want to encourage you, right? Like it is complex, but there is healing. And what all the research basically says is the way to keep pain from becoming the story that defines our lives or the way that trauma is redeemed is simply essentially this, through an alternative story that's told in the presence of a loving, wise person. Does that ring any bells? An alternative story, like taking a fragmented story, putting it into a coherent and true story of reality and doing that in the presence of a compassionate, empathetic relationship instead of relationships. So here's the reality. We cannot change the horrific things that happen to us. You cannot change the trauma, right? You can remember it, but you cannot change it, what happened to you in your past. But what you can change, what can shift in you by the power of God's grace and his Holy Spirit, and again, along a spectrum, not, it's never gonna be perfect, but where we can progress, progress, is we can shift or allow God to shift our perceptions, our interpretations, and the meaning that we ascribe to those experiences. That's what has to change in us if we're gonna experience wholeness. Because humans are story creatures, right? Our brains are pattern-seeking organs. We are hardwired to search for meaning, to tell stories that make sense of our chaotic lives. We must organize our lives into a story. And the more coherent that story is, and the more it's aligned with reality, the more wholeness we live into. One of the biggest disruptors of the stories that we tell ourselves is what? Trauma. It's our suffering because it doesn't make sense, especially if you're a person of faith and you're just like, wait a minute, I thought this was up and to the right. I was told that the kingdom has come, that it's here. And that's supposed to kind of make everything in the past go away. The best is yet to come. Nothing's wasted, right? We have all these slogans and these things that we tell ourselves that are these trite little bumper sticker theology things that don't actually work when we're in the midst of trauma. Trauma fragments our stories. It fragments our sense of self. It fragments the world. Psychologist David Benner says, we need a meaning strong enough to make suffering sufferable. Whatever story we embrace has to help us cope with suffering or it's, it doesn't work because suffering's real. And that's what I love about the story that Jesus is telling here. A God who doesn't suffer can't be trusted right? A God who stands back from our suffering and gives us philosophy can't be trusted. But notice what Jesus says. Back up a verse here in chapter 16, because you're like, where are you getting this from the Bible? Jesus says in verse 31 to his disciples, do you now believe? That word believe is the same word for trust. Do you want to trust? Let me teach you what it's going to look like to trust God in the midst of a traumatized world. Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. 
because the Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in the world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. Jesus is telling an alternative story about trauma. That this God, whom we're called to trust, is not a God that just gives us trite answers. He's a God who enters into our suffering. How else could God tell a story that makes any sense, that has any sort of weightiness to it to hold the weightiness of our trauma? Only Jesus and his story, his life, his death, his resurrection, his kingdom can make suffering sufferable. He makes a way through suffering. Jesus says you can't go around suffering. You can't pretend and click your heels and say there's no place like home, no place like home, no place like home. You must go through suffering if you are to find glory. That's the story of Jesus's life and ministry. And what's beautiful about this is he doesn't just write the story and say, good luck, I'll see you on the other side. This is the author of life. Jesus calls himself the author in Hebrews, the author of life who writes himself into the story. He enters in as a character in the story. He takes on our flesh. He lives in our trauma. He understands. He lives under the boot of imperial Rome at the intersection of a, a minority refugee community. We, that's like another sermon. But he's the author who writes himself in to take the suffering on himself. He's the doctor who doesn't just prescribe medicine and have a good bedside manner, but actually takes his own medicine. And this is the story that he's telling. Trauma is not your only story. Trauma is not your first story. And trauma will not be your last story. Your story is this. It's the same story that Jesus lived in that allowed him to face his own trauma. God is with you, healing you in the midst of your trauma. That's what you need to know. You don't need to know why. You need to know who. Who is with me, right? The, the story of trauma is a story, Jesus says, of being scattered, right? Scattered externally, scattered internally, and then loneliness. He says, you're going to be scattered and you're going to be alone. That's the essence of trauma. You are alone and nobody's coming for you. And Jesus says, that's not my story. My story is that the Father is coming for me. He has come for me, he will come for me, and he will bring about healing. Scattering, fragmentation, shame, isolation, these are the dark shadows of trauma that signal our greatest fears. This is why we don't want to confront our trauma. We're afraid. We're afraid of our shame. We're afraid of our fear. We're afraid of our anxiety. We're afraid of our bodies. We're afraid of change because it's just easier to get comfortable being who we are, even if we have to compensate and adapt a little bit, like I do with my back. Jesus' own trauma is dawning. And what I love about Jesus is he just opens up his inner life. He says, let me just tell you how I face my trauma. Right? Because we share a story together. He's compassionately opening up his inner life to his disciples, and he's helping them understand how he's facing his trauma without giving in to his own very real human impulses to fight or to flight or to freeze or to collapse. Where will Jesus find the resources to remain and to carry out his burden of sacrificial love? He does it by remembering his story. I am not alone. The Father is with me. That's not random. 
He's remembering and he's reaching deeply into the well of his own memory. He's reaching deeply into the memory of God's people, into their imagination, into their first story that's told to us in the book of Genesis. The first story that Jesus rightly perceives as the true story and rightly rehearses as the truth that he must build his life on is that he exists in an eternal community of self-giving love with his father. That's his first story, right? Jesus is God and he's existed with God for eternity past. He's never been alone. And he's saying, I'm not alone now. Just as the father has always been with me, he will continue to come for me and he will not leave me alone even in my greatest hour of suffering. When he stands on the cross, this is often wrongly misinterpreted. When he stands on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, right? Which is about being abandoned, but it is mostly a Psalm about, about being accompanied by God in the midst of suffering. Read the Psalm. So even there, Jesus says, I'm not alone. My life is safe, hidden in the presence of a loving father. And I, and I suspect that Jesus invokes this language, this memory of his life with God, not only for himself, but to do what psychologists call engaging co-regulation, where we borrow the kind of confidence and safety and love of other people when we feel afraid. That's what parents do with their children. Every time you grab your child and they've scraped their knee and you pull them onto your lap and you soothe them, that's co-regulation. You are helping to calm down their central nervous system. And that's what Jesus is doing, like spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically with his own disciples. He's saying, this is your story too. You were created by your father for communion. You have never been alone. I don't care what you've been through. You have never been alone. God will come for you. Just like he's come for me, he will come for you. Shame is not the first word and it won't be the last. Fear is not the first word, it won't be the last. Guilt is not the first word, it won't be the last. I mean, think about Adam and Eve, right? Our first parents, the first story, they sin, which is partly them actually wounding God and partly them being wounded by the evil one. What happens immediately? God comes for them. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Come here. Let me soothe you. Let me care for you. Let me remind you I'm here with you. There's a promise in Genesis 3, right? Immediately after that, of a wounded one who would be sent to crush the traumatizer, the evil one, the serpent, and trauma and sin and death itself. And this is the story that we see over and over and over again throughout the Bible. God coming for his people. He comes for Sarah. Excuse me. He comes for Hagar, right? The slave who's cast out of Father Abraham's house. Again, another sermon. And what does Hagar say? When she's out in the desert alone, God comes to her and she says, you are the God who sees me. Exodus, God sees his people traumatized on the basis of their ethnicity and their religion. They're targeted and they're put into slavery. And it says in Exodus 3, when God shows up to Moses, I've heard their cries. I've seen their misery because of their oppression. I know their trauma. I know their sufferings. Go deliver my people. I'm going to rescue them. Psalm 147.3, in the midst of the psalmist pouring out his heart and his brokenness to God. He says this, God heals the brokenhearted. He bandages their wounds. Isaiah and the great promise in exile, right? He doesn't send Moses as a deliverer. This time he sends a prophet to live among them and to make a promise and to bear in his body 
a promise of one who would come to heal. In Isaiah 53, an amazing passage that has so many layers, he says, he himself, talking about the suffering Messiah, bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And here's the key. We are healed by his wounds. This is our story, right? Jesus came to remind us to purchase for us this reality that our first story is that we were made in the image of God for wholeness. We were made for communion with God. And he came to heal us and restore us back to communion with God where we could actually live in this reality that God is with us no matter what we're walking through. And that's not the last story. When we look forward to Revelation, Jesus is not just drawing in the past, he's drawing us forward to the future. He says, I've overcome the world. That word conquered or overcome is used 17 times in the book of Revelation. It's one of the primary words that Jesus uses to talk about his second coming and about his ministry. At his second coming, Jesus declares war on the forces that conspired to traumatize us. And in Revelation 21, we read of this beautiful scene where new creation comes in fullness. The heavenly city comes down to earth. There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more trauma. It's all being made new again. And here's what we need to remember. It's not like all of our memories just get wiped like Will Smith in Men in Black. That's not how it happens. If you notice, all the language of Revelation 21 comes from the garden, And in in Revelation 21, I love the way one pastor says it, Jesus builds a new city from the shattered fragments of the fall and from our pain. All of the pieces of the new heavens that come down and fill the earth are shards and shatterings from our past that God has repurposed into new creation. This is the story that we can build our lives on, that God's method for dealing with trauma is not to protect us from all pain, but rather to redeem us through our pain and suffering. Not that God causes it, it's not that God inflicts us with it, but he says, my story will overwhelm the story of your trauma. This is what gives meaning to us in our suffering. And yet we live in this in-between, right? We, We live in between these two stories. So how do we, how do we just make it? What does it look like to experience healing right now as disciples who live in the already but not yet tension of life in a broken world? I, I just want to end and take us to communion with a beautiful story from one of Jesus' disciples. And, and there are many of these stories in the book of John. John is a book all about trauma and the healing of trauma. But I, I don't know about you, but I, I often struggle to believe, like, yeah, I want to be a wounded healer. <laughs> But I often struggle to believe that Jesus can actually enter into my story. That like Jesus can enter into this anxiety, this mess, this hot mess right here, all the depth of what I've lived and experienced. And he can actually work the kind of deep healing that he promises here. Like to connect that abstract truth with like my lived experience. And if you can relate to that, then you can relate to the story of Thomas in John 20. I'm not going to read the story to you. Many of you know the story. But essentially after his resurrection, Jesus starts going back and restoring all of this brokenness 
from when basically everybody, everybody did, he was prophesying, but everybody did leave him at the cross. So everybody's traumatized, not just by the cross, but now they're carrying shame that they abandoned Jesus. So Jesus has to go back to them and start restoring this community so that they can become wounded healers. So he shows up and he gets to the disciples and he shows up in his body. Remember, if sin is embodied pain, then redemption must be embodied presence. So he shows up with his body. He shows them his scars, his first, his first group of disciples. And, and I want you to note, God doesn't remove his scars. Wounds have now become scars. That's the trajectory of healing. That wounds get healed, they get integrated into our redeemed stories and bodies. Wow, let's just stop there for a moment. And they become sacred wounds. They become holy wounds. They become redemptive wounds. Wounds that are not forgotten, but repurposed. And what I love is when he shows the disciples his wounds there in John chapter 20, there's joy. Like our scars become places of joy as we tell the stories of God's healing in our lives. That's what a, a, a church should be. It's just a community where we experience and tell those stories of how God is healing us in our trauma and pain. But here's the key. Thomas isn't there. Thomas is at home probably watching Netflix, binging Netflix. I don't know what he's doing. He's disappointed. He's like, dude, I, I thought you were the one. I thought we were going up and to the right and you took like a turn and went down and to the left. What are you doing? And he's disappointed. He's discouraged. He's skeptical. His trust has been broken in God, which often happens to victims of trauma. They begin to blame God instead of to blame evil and, and the evil that we experience in the world. Trauma therapist, Diane Langberg says, when people are traumatized, instead of learning from God who he is, they learn from the trauma and believe that God is behind the evil oftentimes, and they will lose their faith. They will deconstruct their faith many, many times. And so what I love about Thomas, Thomas, in the midst of his disappointment, shows up and just says to the other disciples, basically, he's just like, hey, if Jesus wants me, he can come get me. I'm not going to him. I've resigned myself. And so Jesus is like, great, I'm going to go to him. So Jesus goes and he shows up with the disciples. And what I love about that is like Thomas shows us what it looks like to honestly name our wounds. He doesn't hide the wounds because Thomas would have been raised in a tradition that had the Psalms. We love the Psalms because they're all about joy and celebration and praise, right? But you forget 40% of the Psalms are lament. Have you read Psalm 88? Abuse, abandonment, despair. And it ends with this great line, which was picked up by Simon and Garfunkel, darkness is my only friend. Became a great song. But it doesn't end with bows. It just was like a guy raging out in the presence of God. But that's what Christianity offers us. We don't have to suppress. We don't have to hide. We can just come before God and tell him what it looks like to be wounded. And he's not afraid. He doesn't rebuke Thomas. Frederick Buechner, the great author, pastor, one of my favorites on telling the story of our lives. He has a great book called Telling Secrets. And he, taught, he tells the story of his father's death and how it traumatized him for the majority of his life and really impacted his parenting with his kids and all kinds of anxiety. But he says this, if as someone has said, we are sick as our secrets, then to get well is to air those secrets if only in our own hearts, which the prayer asks God himself to air and cleanse. When they are sad and hurtful secrets, like my father's death, we can, in a way, honor the hurt by letting ourselves feel it as we never let ourselves feel it before. And then having felt it, laying it aside. 
We can start to take care of ourselves the way we take care of people that we love. That's what's happening in the Psalms. And Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, touch my wounds. Touch them for yourself. Touch my scars. And in that courageous act of touching the wounds of Jesus, I don't know if he like plunged his finger in there. I don't know if he's like, like a child just like cautiously approached a wild animal and he's kind of rubbing it. I, I don't know what all that looked like. But it was to take his own story and his own wounds and his own pain seriously. To bring it to Jesus, to open himself up, to not be afraid to confront his own shame and his loneliness and his fears of wholeness. To do that in a community, right? We must do that in a community. That's why the church is so important for us, a safe place. The church should be a safe place. Unfortunately, it's not always, but it should be a safe place for us to tell our story because if we are wounded in community, we are healed in community. And as one psychologist says, trauma often endures because severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home. Jesus says to Thomas, touch my wounds. And I think in this invitation is an invitation to all of us. We must make this alternative story that Jesus is telling about his life, his death, his resurrection, his victory over trauma, the reality of the new creation that's breaking into this world that will one day be built out of the shattered pieces of the fall, we must make that personal. We must get that out of the realm of just theology and abstraction into our muscle memory, into our imagination, into our day in and day out lived relationships. We must. We must connect our wounds and our pain to the wounds and the pain of Jesus. And this is just where I want to close this. Jesus entered into our suffering. And, and I think it's this touching of the wounds, this connecting of his wounds to Jesus's wounds that is the key to reinterpreting Thomas's story. Because at the end of this story, he's like, hey, my Lord and my God, like this is making sense of my whole life. Jesus, you are Lord and you are God. I believe this story and I want to I wanna be defined by this story. It's, it's a reinterpretation and a shift where he begins to understand that in the darkness, was not the place of absence of God, but in the darkness was the place where God was actually most present. And we have got to learn to see God in that darkness because it's easy to miss him, but he's there. Jesus, like us, faced trauma. He faced the depths and the darkness of the trauma in his body. And that's why his body is front and center in the passion narrative. His body gets beaten. His body gets split. His body gets tortured. Everything we could imagine suffering and trauma, Jesus took on himself. He is the wounded one. He is the traumatized one. He is the crucified one. And that is the source of his power of healing in our lives. We have to connect our wounds to the wounds of Christ. That has to become our story. We have to reflect on that and internalize that until we see that everything that is happening to us is not random, it's not meaningless, it's not the end of our story, but that Jesus lived it, came to die for it, rose from the dead to defeat it. And that's why Paul invites us to participation in that story. He says to the Galatians, you have been crucified with Christ. His wounds are yours and yours are his. You are with him, united with him in his death. And only if you're united with him in his death, Paul says in Romans 6, do you get to be united with him in his resurrection? 
Only if you connect your story to his and find healing for your wounds there will you ever have a shot at experiencing any sort of life on this side of trauma. But it is possible. It is possible to land where Joseph lands at the end of his story, one traumatized by his brothers and his family, where he says, what you meant for evil, God has repurposed for good. And that's not a cheap throwaway line. That's a guy who lived for decades learning that lesson in jail cells and in the halls of power as he was being abused. And all of that becomes for us an opportunity as Jesus' love, the healing ointment of his life, of his glory is poured out into our deepest wounds to bring about our deepest healing. We have the potential to become what now and called one of the healers. He says this, like Jesus, he who proclaims liberation is called not only to care for his own wounds and the wounds of others, but also to make his wounds into a major source of his healing power. Church history tells the rest of Thomas' story. He goes out and he becomes a wounded healer. He gives his life away for the sake of the world, for the sake of the mission of God. But it started with attending to his own wounds. So I just want to invite you, our practice kind of for this week is you want to put your stuff away and we go to communion, is just to just to tell your story. Two things I wanted to invite you into this week. Tell your story. Maybe you've never written down your story. You've not named what you've lived. You've not given space to go back and just to name some of the things that you've lived and how that's impacted your interpretations of life. And I just want to invite you to get out a sheet of paper and just begin to write out what you've lived to find some friends or family, some safe people to tell your story to. Because again, we are wounded in community. We are healed in community. We have an opportunity to tell our story. And as we tell the story, begin to connect the dots of how God has been with us, how God has preserved us, how God has sustained us and where we're going and where we've been. And I want to also invite you this week to maybe take some time. The Ignatians had a great practice of meditating on the wounds of Christ that's been kind of helpful in, in his spiritual exercises. St. Ignatius just invites us to go into the gospel story and to meditate on the wounds of Christ, to see Jesus' body being broken, to see his blood being shed, and to, to meditate on that and to kind of enter into that story with our imagination, connecting our wounds to his, receiving the actual healing that flowed from his body into our own. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you speak to life as it really is. You don't paper it over. You don't pretend as if these hard things don't happen. And you also give us a greater story. You give us an ability to live out this story of redemption in very tangible ways. And so, God, I pray that we would just open ourselves this week to you, tell you our story to bring our hearts, our pain, our trauma before you, And God, just to cry out for your healing. Wherever we find ourselves today, whether that healing is spiritual or emotional or mental or physical, God, I pray that we would have thrown a new passion this week, open ourselves to you. And God, just seek the healing that you've come to give us. God, would you remind us this week that you, the beautiful one, the crucified one, are coming for us. You have come for us and you will continue to come for us. You will not leave us alone. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.